We're thrilled to have a, a very special guest with us this evening. As most of you know, we have uh, Christopher Alam with us from all over the world. Uh, current resident of Pennsylvania, grew up in Pakistan, and has and lived in uh, some other countries as well uh, along the way. And and God has done tremendous things in his life, saving him, doing just turning his life around, and thus the results of that have been literally millions of people have been uh, have been saved, have come to know the Lord, have been healed, have been set free from all kinds of problems and issues in their life, and uh, and so I just believe tonight is a night. Uh, that 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 God's going to do tremendous things here. All right, we're not we're we're not we're not interested in in giving people a religious experience, just adding a little religion to your life, because that doesn't ultimately produce the desired result. But we are interested in in saying, can I open up my heart? Can I open up my life? Can God really work something in me to make uh, to make a difference, to make a change? And uh, and some of us have experienced him in the past, and he's so good. We wanted to make him known to as many people as we can. And so uh, uh, our uh, Christopher goes all around the world, spends a lot of time. He'll probably tell you, maybe he will. Uh, a lot of time in India and Africa, doing large open air crusades. Uh, do they call them crusades? I don't know. Uh, if that has a negative connotation some places. Um, uh, but literally a sea of people as far as you can see. And uh, and just amazing things take place in his life and ministry. And so we're going to just welcome him tonight to come and share his testimony, whatever he, God has given him to share with us. And let's just uh, eat it up. Let's listen close and, and see what comes out of the end of this. I know God is faithful to always watch over His Word to perform it. And so uh, let's be, let's give a big Life Church welcome to uh, for the very first time to Idaho, Christopher Alum. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Thank you, Pastor, for your kind words. Can we all stand up together and have a word of prayer? Father, we honor you. We glorify this morning, Lord Jesus. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the unchanging one. I thank you, Lord, that when you died upon the cross, you bore upon your own self all our shortcomings, our failures, our sins, and our diseases. And by your stripes, we have been healed, and through your blood, we have redemption. Lord Jesus, I ask you that tonight you would touch our hearts, touch the hearts of those who need you, who need to know you, heal those that are sick, do miracles in this place. And Lord, for everything you do, we covenant to give you all the glory, all the honor and the praise, because you alone are worthy in the name of Jesus. Please be seated. I am greatly honored to be here, first time in Idaho. The only thing I only the only thing I knew about Idaho were the French fries and McDonald's, but uh, they always talked about Idaho potatoes, you know. So now I'm in Idaho, and it's much nicer than I thought it would be. <laughs> but 
I, th I thought the only grew potatoes here, but they got beautiful mountains and it's so nice. I really, I was, I was also thinking it would be very, very cold, but it's colder in Pennsylvania than here. So it's good to be here with you all. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Well, my name is Christopher Alam. Um, I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in the heart of Amish country. But as Pastor said, I'm not Amish, uh, but uh, I'm Middle Eastern. My family is from Jordan, but I grew up in Pakistan, and I've lived in the United States for about 25 years. And like Pastor, I went to Rema, uh, but that was 1981, 82. You know, it's a long time ago. A few more years, I'll get to, I'll be qualified to be called the Ancient of Days. But that was, <laughs> you know, 30, 30, 30, my goodness, it's 38 years ago I went to Bible schools. But it's good to be here with you all. Amen. Let's, uh, can, can I have some water? Uh, if I could have a, a bottle right here, I'll keep it right here with some time. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good, it's good. I'll just keep it right here in case I get thirsty. Praise God. I want to read to you from the book of Galatians, if you have your Bibles. And uh, I'm reading from verse 13. And here the Apostle Paul shares his story. He gives his testimony in a nutshell. All of us have a story, have a story and this was his story. And it says, uh, and, and you know what makes it fascinating if someone's, someone's story is very different to yours. Somebody is from a part, you know, place on the other side of the earth, and it's, it's very different, so it becomes fascinating. And Paul talks about his background in verse 13 in Galatians 1. Do you understand my funny accent? Are you okay? All right, okay. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many mine equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. So he's talking about his background, and what he's basically saying is that he was a Jew, but he was also a zealous Jew. He was zealous to the point that when the Jews were persecuting the church, Paul was in the forefront of that. The other thing was that he said he was zealous for the traditions of the fathers. Which is very interesting because faith always looks forward. But religion always looks backwards. Religion looks at, is more interested in uh, holding on to the relics, the traditions of the past. Religion is actually a museum. Faith is a venture. So, so he, was, he was zealous for the traditions of the father. But then something happened. It says here, verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. He says three things here. Firstly, he says, it pleased God. You know, I am a Christian today because it pleased God. I, it's not that I was worthy that Jesus should receive me. In fact, to get a hold of me, he really had to go to the bottom of the barrel. And scrape me up from there. I, I really cannot say that I, you know, I have, I, I had done anything remarkable or significant in my life. That I was a good person because of which God loved me. The Bible says that we, you know, that, that Jesus died for us when we were sinners. 
So I'm here because it pleased God. I was minding my own business when somebody told me about Jesus and God got a hold of me. And you know, I was 21 years of age. I'd never seen a Bible, never met a Christian. I didn't know anything about Jesus. And somehow God in his mercy got a hold of me. So we are here because it pleased God. Amen. We could have been somewhere else, but we are worshiping God because it pleased him. Then he says, who separated me from my mother's womb. Paul lived his life with a sense of destiny. He, he understood his purpose. He, he understood the reason why God had put him on this planet. And that is the key, the secret to happiness. The, the secret to true contentment and happiness, it, it never comes from how much you own or how much money you have in the bank. But it comes from knowing the purpose that God has for your life. And discovering that purpose and, uh, and living in that purpose, that gives you joy and that gives you true happiness. And I'm a missionary. I spend half of my year in Africa and places, uh, uh, you know, sometimes very primitive places. But I'm happy, I'm content doing it because, not because of what it gives me in worldly terms, but because that is my purpose, that is why God created me. I've done a lot of things, but it is in doing that that I found my purpose. And so I'm content and happy doing that. And, and happiness and contentment is something that everybody's looking for. And you'll find it only when you find the purpose for which God put you on this planet. And then it says, and he called me by his grace. Here's the interesting thing. When God calls us to serve him, like I'm called to the ministry, he doesn't call us on the basis of our qualifications. Of our or of our merits. A lot of the people I preach to, they know far more than I do. They know more of the Bible than I do. I had people say to me, he said, what you do is so easy. I could, I could do this also. I said, I'm sure you could. You have a better pedigree than I am. You know more than I do. But the fact is that I'm doing it and not you. And, and that is, you know, and, and that is, and it's only because of the grace of God. When God calls us, He calls us because of His grace alone. He calls us who are unqualified. And He calls us by His grace. And when we obey Him, it is in that obedience that He qualifies us. He anoints us with His Holy Spirit and, and, and sends us out to do. So that was His story. And then He says... Um, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. So God did all this. Chose him from his mother's womb. Gave him his grace. Called him for what? Not so that he should preach the gospel but to give him a revelation of Jesus Christ. To reveal his son in me. That I may preach him among the heathen. So first comes that revelation of Jesus Christ in the inner man. And once you have that revelation. From that your ministry is born. Because you can only share with life changing conviction. The things that are a revelation to you. The things that are real to you. So this was his story and I want to use this as a springboard to share my story with you because what I want to share with you tonight is why I preach the gospel. Why do I do this? You know, I come from a Muslim background. I didn't grow up in a Christian home and uh, uh, my dad, you know, until he died, he used to wonder. He said, why are you giving a life preaching the white man's religion? 
why, why are you doing this? And uh, because my whole family, you know, they, my, my dad was a general in the army. I was an army officer and everybody. I've got a cousin. He's, he lives in, outside Boston. He has two PhDs from MIT. Everyone in my family are very high achievers and well-educated and very wealthy. And I became the black sheep of the family. Over the years, I found out I'm actually the only white sheep in the family. That's uh, took me years to figure that out. You know, because I look at their lives, I look at their broken marriages, their estranged children, I look at the circumstances of their life, and then I, I thank God for what I have. But but they all wonder, you know. I mean, they say, you know, uh, you're such a nice guy. My my, my I have one uncle. He said. Uh, what happened to you? I mean, why did you, of all the things in the world, why did you become a Christian? And not only become a Christian, but you are preaching the gospel. Why? So, I want to share with you why I preach the gospel. And I can, uh, I should say, I can divide my reasons into two categories. The first category, I would call it the spiritual reasons why I preach the gospel. And the second category would be the personal reasons, my personal reasons for preaching the gospel. Now, the spiritual categories, uh, spiritual reasons, they apply to all of us. They are the same for all of us. And, and the spiritual reasons, well, the first one would be, uh, Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So I should say the first spiritual reason I preach the gospel is because Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Now, there are many religions, you know, I, I have studied different religions, and they all teach good things. They all vary and differ, and there's a lot of similarities, and there's enough similarities there for people to say, well, all roads lead to Rome. Have you heard that expression? Well, they don't, because you can get on this interstate here, you could drive the rest of your life, you will not end up in Rome, you know. So that's, that's a fallacy to believe that, you know. Uh, uh, you know, all religions, all philosophies teach good things, but Jesus Christ is the only way to God. I'm not talking about the best religion. I'm talking about how do you get to know the Father? How do you get to know God? And Jesus Christ, He's the only one who ever said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Nobody else ever made that claim to be the only way to God, but Jesus Christ did. And so, if that is true, then I must make sure, make it my duty to make sure that those who do not know Jesus also hear about him and get to know him. So that's the first spiritual reason. The second spiritual reason is because Jesus commanded us to preach the gospel. The, he said in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, he said, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we, we call it the Great Commission. Now, it's not the Great Suggestion. You know, he didn't say if you feel like it or if you feel called. Or, but he said, it's a commandment. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And I remember when I, I first saw a Bible. I was 21 years old, began to read the Bible. And I saw that verse and I said, wow, he's talking to me. So because I learned to take every verse I see in the Bible to take it personally. So that's... Another reason. Another reason would be Matthew 24, 14, where it says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness to every nation, and then shall the end come. 
that the Bible says that we must preach the gospel to every nation, every people's group. That's what it means. Ethnos means people's group. And then shall the end come. So we, we must preach the gospel. This is something that God has ordained that we should do. So these are my spiritual reasons. And these apply to all of us. None of us is exempt. None of us is exempt. Everybody should be involved in it in some way or the other. You might say, well, I'm not like you. I'm not called to go to Africa. Fine. Don't go to Africa. Go to your neighbor. Or, or whoever. You know, I mean, this is a big city. And there's plenty of people here. So, you know, this, this is your field, right? So, you know, so everyone, all of us should be involved in some way or the other. Now, so those are the spiritual reasons. Now, I get to the personal reason. The first personal reason why I preach the gospel is I preach the gospel because of what Jesus has done for me. You know, I grew up in a Muslim home. Uh, my, my family, we are direct descendants from uh, Muhammad, the prophet of Islam. And uh, um, I should say the first eight years of my childhood were happy. And then something happened and my parents split up and uh, my mother left and until she died last year, I had very little to do with her. I met her a few times, but, you know, whatever happened, she left when I was very small. And my father uh, married another woman, and this lady was very, very cruel. So I remember from the next day, after she came to her house, all I remember for those five years, from eight until 13, uh, was that I was uh, physically, uh, uh, you know, abused and beaten up by her, if not every day. Almost every day. I was beaten up with uh, hockey sticks and cricket bats. I mean, whatever she could get a hold on. I was severely beaten. So by the time I was 13, I kind of despaired in life. I got tired of being beaten up and I didn't know what to do. And one day, um, I read in the newspaper that the Air Force had a program. They were taking little kids my age. They had a special cadet program. And they would take you and uh, give you... Uh, military training, education, then when you turn 17, you'd begun, you, you, you'd begin basic flying training, and then you'd, they'd turn you into fighter pilot. So I applied, and there were about 10,000 people, who kids who applied, and I applied. And my only reason for applying was not so much because, you know, I wanted a career in the Air Force as a fighter pilot. I just wanted to get out of the house. So, uh, and there were about, uh, as, as I said, there were about 10,000 applicants, and I think they were taking 30 or 31 people, and I came in as number 26 or 27. So I got in, and I remember I reported for duty. They gave me a haircut and uh, gave me uniforms, and that's how I dressed for the next five years. And so now I thought that uh, uh, I would be happy, you know, getting away from my family, from my dad, from my stepmother, I'd be happy. But I was not happy. I mean, I was miserable. I was a thousand miles away from them. But I was unhappy and miserable. And I couldn't understand why. Now I understand. It took me years to figure this out. And that was being in the ministry, ministering to people who were hurting. And it took me years to realize that, you see, uh, once that spirit of rejection and bitterness gets into you and becomes a part of you, it doesn't matter where you go or how far you go away from the people who hurt you and torment you. Or even if you're tormentors, they leave this world and they die. Now the problem is you, it's inside you. 
And that will determine how you respond to people. And even well-intentioned people, you'll feel rejected by them. And, and, and you, you become very sensitive, you get hurt and rejected. And that's what was happening to me. I wish I understood it then, but I, I didn't. I understood as a grown-up. But that's what was wrong with me. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. Nobody understood why I was that way. So by the time I was 15, I was suicidal. I just wanted to end it all. I wanted to die. I felt like nobody loved me. Nobody wanted me. I had nothing to live for. Why not just end it and die? But what prevented me from killing myself was that Islam teaches that suicide is a cardinal sin. That if a person commits suicide, he goes straight to hell. And hell is forever. It's eternal. And that there are no mitigating circumstances. Once And then also I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that one day I would stand before God and I'd be judged and that there's a heaven, there's a hell and I would go to hell. I mean, I just knew it. And I didn't believe this whole thing like people, you know, people in the Western world like to say, well, once you die, it's over. Well, if it's over, why do you live a good life? What difference does it make? What kind of person you are if it's all over anyway? It's all for nothing. Uh, what's the whole point? But I believe in eternal life. I believed in God. I believed there was a heaven and a hell. And I knew that when I died, I'd go to hell. And I was afraid of going to hell. And so that kind of kept me alive. I somehow, you know, I didn't know what would happen, but I just, you know, you kept on hoping. Then I was 17. When I was 17, the country went to war and the president came on the radio and he used the magic word, jihad. Jihad means a holy war. And, uh, and we were taught that if you die in a holy war, all your sins are forgiven and you are welcomed by God, you go into heaven. Now, just imagine how warped my thinking was. Here I'm 17 years old. And when you're 17, you're thinking of college and your future. And I just had a death wish. I looked at this as a window of opportunity. I'm going to go to war. I'm going to get killed. This life will be over. And I'm going to go straight to heaven. So I spent a whole month fasting and praying, reading the Quran, trying to purify myself. As I understood then, I'm cleansing and purifying myself. And of course, then the, there was total hostilities, there was fighting. And I was not a fully trained fighter pilot. I, was, I just had basic training. So, but I could use small arms, uh, rifles and machine guns. So I volunteered for ground operations and I went to war. And all I can say is that I saw horrible things. And and, and let me tell you, no human being is designed by God to see and to go through things that people see in war. It is no human being is designed by God to come through those things. And so here I was only a 17-year-old kid. And then when the war ended, I found myself in a situation that here I am. I had nothing to live for, nobody wanted me, I just wanted to die, yet I was alive and thousands and thousands of young people, the, the best years of their youth, they died or were maimed for life and I couldn't understand, the, uh, you know, it didn't make sense to me uh, uh, that, uh, you know, parents who love their children and their children come back in a in a body bag, in a box. You know, I, it just didn't make sense to me. And so I, I began to work through these things. Plus, I had my own pain to deal with. So I came to a point when I didn't know whether there was a God or not, or if he was there, whether he even cared for what's going on here. 
down here and uh, anyway so I kind of so at that time I left the Air Force I was commissioned into the army I was an army officer I was 17 18 years of age I was with an infantry battalion up in the mountains I came down and uh, I didn't fit into uh, I just didn't fit in so I left the army when I came to civilian life I didn't fit in there either so I was back in the army so you know I really I was drifting I had no sense of direction and then one day in December 1975 and you know those were the days there were people there was flower power and hippies and people smoking drugs and all that and they all used to pass through Pakistan on the way to India coming from Europe coming from America and they, they you know they would pass through going to India and Nepal where there was they were you know drugs were plentiful I never used drugs never and uh, so but you know I saw all that so uh, one day I was walking down the street I was actually going to an electric store to buy something and then I looked across the street and I see this tall white man he was maybe six foot six he was very tall uh, a slim white man and he seems to have this look of uh, pure peace and joy in his face and I had never seen that kind of look in anybody's face and he was handing these pieces of paper out to people and he was smiling and I looked at him and I was thinking this man has something that I have never known I got to cross the street and find out what he is smoking so so I you know I, so I crossed the street and I and I asked him I said sir who are you and where are you from and he said I'm from England I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, I'm traveling around the world telling people about Jesus now what I didn't know that he was the second son of the wealthiest Christian in England a great philanthropist who gave millions of dollars to missions he was their son and God had called him and he was going to India but he had stopped in that city for one night and he had prayed his friends told me later on I found out and they heard him crying out to God in his room he was saying God just give me one soul one person who will follow you and then he did the unthinkable that you don't do in a Muslim country but he was ignorant you know he didn't know nobody told him how dangerous it was so he went on the street began to hand out tracks and there I come and uh, so I asked him, I said, sir, who are you? And, and, and so he said, I'm from England. I'm traveling around the world and I'm telling people about Jesus Christ. The moment he said Jesus Christ, uh, all I can say is that something got me. I don't know what it was. And I began to pour out my story to him. And, uh, and he began to tell me, he said, you know what? He said, if you ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart, he will set you free. That's all. I mean, and you know, I'd never seen a Bible, never been to church, never met a Christian. And, you know, I was an educated person. And, uh, and you see, here's the difference between Westerners and Easterners. Westerners, everything has to be logical. You hear something and you have to filter it through your logic. It has to add up. Two and two has to be four. And, and if it doesn't make sense, you reject it altogether. Right? And, and that's how most people are. I don't believe in this because of this. You know, I, they have, they, they'll, a lot of people will tell you what they don't believe in, but they don't know what they do believe in. That's their problem. But that, that's the problem with Western society. People have a lot of things they don't believe in, but very few things that they actually believe in. Well, we, we Easterners, what we do, if something grabs your heart, that's it. 
Now that's both for good and bad. Works both for good and bad. But when he, you know, when he began to talk about Jesus, something got me. And I thought, man, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. This is what, I don't understand this, but this is, this is it. So he said, do you want to receive Jesus? I said, yes. How do I do that? He said, well, just close your eyes and pray after me. So I closed my eyes. You know, we Muslims, we are used to, you wash your hands and feet and wash your face and you face Mecca and you put a cap on your head and you bow down, you do prayer thing. He said, no, you just have to stand, close your eyes and just repeat after me. And the words were, he was some, you know, he was one of those Jesus people. He said, hey man, Jesus, you know, something like that. And I thought, you don't talk to Jesus like that, you know. He says, uh, then I kind of, you know, uh, so he said, come into my heart, set me free. And, you know, and then he said, amen. So I, amen. It was a short prayer. Then he said, open your eyes, open my eyes. And suddenly it felt like a huge, like I'd lived my whole life carrying a huge boulder. And that had been lifted off. That was the first thing. The, s- the second thing was as if my whole life had been in black and white. And now everything was in technicolor. I was so happy. I, I, I remember I went home and just uh, praising God and singing. And my, my friends thought I was crazy. And they thought, you're not like that. What have they done to you? And uh, let's go out to the club. And we used to do terrible things, you know, some of my friends. And I said, I don't feel like going out with you and doing those nasty things. They said, what's wrong? Are you sick? No, I'm not sick. So what's wrong? I said, you know, I asked Jesus to come into my heart and, and he won't let me do these things. And he said, have you become Jesus? Have you become a Christian? I said, I don't know. <laughs> because I don't know what Christians believe. I, I don't know whether what I have become. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I just gave my life to Jesus. And Jesus is in the Quran. You know, he's one of the prophets I said Jesus is in the Quran and I asked him to come to my heart and I didn't know he could come into people's heart and live there but but he did that and so anyway so well after a few days I was in the army mental hospital and uh, and when I was in the mental hospital I began to preach and share and then there was one of the staff there he got saved anyway so the doctor he decided we should part company so anyway so they released me and then I was, I'm cutting a long story short, I was under house arrest and then I escaped from there. Then I was on the streets preaching because God called me to preach the gospel and I was on the streets handing out tracts, preaching the gospel for months and then I was arrested and I was in prison and uh, they said you'll come out of prison either in a casket, uh, they kept me under terrorism charge. I would come out either in a casket or if I go back to Islam. I said, well, I'm not going back to Islam. And, but it took a little bit less than a year. It was a terrible place, you know, prison. Uh, prisons there are not like prisons here. So uh, after almost a year, I came out of prison. And then they tried to coerce me, you know, force me, go back to, you know, to renounce Christ. And I refused to do that. Then they said they would execute me. So I left my home with 75 cents in my pocket. I lost everything. I trusted God, went to Afghanistan, Soviet Union, Turkey, Belgium. And then I went to Holland. Then I ended up in Sweden uh, where I got scholarship to go to a Bible school. And uh, then I was, uh, I applied for political asylum. And I got refugee status there. I settled there, started my life all over again. 
I got married, met my wife in church, got baptized with the Holy Spirit and continued my ministry. And that was like, uh, you know, it has been 44 years since I gave my life to Jesus. And now today as I stand before you, I preached in uh, close to 80 countries. We see about a million people come to Jesus. Every year, you've seen 1,500 churches started through our ministry, preaching the gospel all over the world. But I can say two things. The first thing is, when I look back at my life, and as I'm telling you the story of my life, of my past, it really, honestly, it seems to me I'm talking about somebody else, not about me. Because what I am is so different to what I used to be. That's the first thing. And... And the second thing is really in the light of that. There's a scripture which says, If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. All things are become new. And I can tell you that verse is totally true because that's what God has done in my life. So that is the first reason. That is why I believe that Jesus Christ is a total life changer. It's not just a story, it's not just a religion, but he is actually a life changer. Jesus Christ, he is the changer of the lives of those who come to him. Because he took me when I was in the pit, I was suicidal, nothing to live for. Some of the horrible things I saw in my life, he took me out. And you know, I have no PTSD, nothing of that sort. I'm a completely whole person. And it's only because of the goodness and the grace of God. Hallelujah. So that's the first reason I preach the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done for me. Uh, the second reason I preach the gospel is because of what Jesus has done for other people. And I can tell you many, many, many stories of uh, people, you know, from the past 43 years preaching the gospel in many nations. I can tell you, but, but, but let, me, let me tell you this one story. A few years ago. I was preaching in the town of Chaisa in Zambia, a very, very poor township in Africa. And I'm preaching there and uh, I was in a, in, a, in a field and we had maybe 70, 80, 90,000 people packed together. We don't know how many are there, but it was people packed together. So I'm preaching there and they, you know, now I have a huge PA system. In fact, I've actually doubled my PA output. I've got, I used to have 10 speakers, I have 20 speakers now. I just acquired them. And these are big speakers. And, uh, and, and when I'm preaching, you can hear me four or five miles away. I'm not making this up. You can hear me. I mean, when I'm preaching, you can hear me. Now, the reason I have that is because I want to make sure everybody in town hears about Jesus, whether they like it or not. <laughs> so, I say... Because there's, you know, there's always people, oh, we don't like Christians, we don't like... Uh, these preachers, I'm not going to go to his crusade. Fine, I'll come to your house, you know. <laughs> and uh, you cannot shut me out because I have permit from the police. So we have our permit and, you know, and so, so I've actually doubled my PA system. Anyway, so I'm preaching and about a mile and uh, about one mile away, one and a half kilometers, which is a mile away, uh, they lived a family in that township, you know, tens of thousands of people. And this family had two children. There was a girl who was about 11 and her baby brother who was 9. Now, 
the little boy, he had contracted spinal meningitis when he was two years of age that had left him paralyzed from his chest down. So, you know, he was kind of on his bed paralyzed. And the parents, for some reason, they didn't believe in God, they didn't like Christians, they didn't like preachers, and they were very angry at Christianity. And uh, they used to go, leave their kids, and go to the bar, local bar, to drink every night. And so they used to say to the girl that, look after your baby brother, mom and dad are going out with their friends, so they go to the bar and drink and come back late in the evening. They did this almost every night. So, and so I'm, I'm starting my crusade on Tuesday night and mom and dad go to the bar and this boy, they didn't have a television, so he's laying in bed and through the open window he can hear me preach. So here's me preach on Tuesday night, here's me preach on Wednesday night, Thursday night when the parents leave, he says to his sister, he says, could you please carry me on your back? Because African women carry their children on the back. Could you please carry me on your back to where this man is? Because I know his Jesus is going to heal me tonight. Tonight is my night. I know his Jesus is going to do it tonight. And, and she said, but you know, it's far. It's right next to my school. It's very far away. And she said, no, but please. And she said, well, mom and dad will be angry. He said, I know, I asked dad and dad got very angry. But now they're, they're gone for a few hours. If you, if you pick me up, yeah, but you are almost as big as me. You're heavy. I cannot carry you. And he began to cry. He pleaded and begged. He says, he says you know what? This is my only chance because otherwise I'll be like this the rest of my life. I'll end up as a beggar on the streets. And, and I promise you because you'll just have to carry me one way because I'm going to walk back. I just, I just know. You know, let, let me tell you. There's some things money cannot buy. Faith is the only currency that is recognized in heaven. And so, so anyway, she sees her brother crying and so she cries. And so anyway, she picks up her brother on her back piggyback and they begin to walk. They step out of the house. Now in those African townships, those poor townships, firstly the roads are not paved. You've got big potholes, you've got sharp stones everywhere. The second thing is that there's no street lights. They have these tall posts about a hundred feet high. You'll have them maybe half a mile apart, you know, but there's no, it's like pitch dark. And they say there's nothing as dark as an African night. You step out, it's dark. You see nothing. You can't see even two feet ahead of you. So she begins to walk with her brother. Then she falls into a hole somewhere and, and she falls and she, you know, she hurts herself and he gets hurt and, and she says, I don't know if I can do this. And he says, please, please, please carry me. This is my only chance and we have already come so far. So she picks him up and calls. And by the time they reach the field, they had fallen so many times. So I remember they were both cut, you know, on the head. All the skin was gone from their arms and the elbows and the knees were, they were skinned and bleeding. And they had scratches and cuts on their faces all over their bodies and they were bleeding. But they made it to the field. And that night, Jesus healed that little boy. And he, that little boy, he, he got up and and, and he began to walk and the people got excited. Someone picked him up, put him on the platform. He looked at the crowd. He got scared. He was speechless. I said, what was wrong with you? And he was crying. And I said, who brought him? And then next thing, someone puts the little girl on the platform. And she looks at the crowd. She begins to cry. And I said, what happened? Then I heard the story. And I told my team, I said, you know, the way 
we look at crowds. Here we are in Africa. I've been doing this for 32 years. And people look. We never see individuals. We see mass. Like It's like a sea of humanity. I said, that's the way we are used to seeing the crowds. But I said, but sometimes God lifts up an individual out of the crowd. So we come face to face with that individual. And then we realize that this is not about crowds. But it's about people that Jesus died for people. And I said, here we are in one of the poorest townships in Zambia. In the western world, people probably don't even care. Because these people are so poor. And I'm a little paralyzed African boy. What can he contribute to society? I said, I live in America where a person's worth is measured in how much money he has in the bank. And this boy is worth nothing. But Jesus cares. And Jesus cares so much that he will go past a million people and touch this little boy because he has faith. I said, that's why we're here. And we spent all this money on this crusade. I flew from the U.S. My team came from Zimbabwe. But we are here. And if the only person who was touched is this little boy, it would be worth it. And, you know, I think of the little boy often, how old he must be today, and what he is doing, and he has a life, and, uh, and he has a future. And I can tell you so many stories. I mean, um, and, and another, do you mind if I tell you about another person? That there's a, you know, there's a guy, and someone, uh, someone brought this guy to my door in Sweden. This was 1981, before I went to Rayma. And, uh, and said, well, this is, Young man from Algeria, he's a Muslim like you used to be. Please tell him about Jesus. And pushed him to the door and the lady disappeared. So I said, I said, well, welcome. Can I offer you some tea or coffee? I said, so you want to hear about Jesus? And he was not. He was actually interested in the lady. And, and so, so, so she dumped him on me and looked at his watch. He said, well, I got time. I said, good. So I began to tell him about Jesus. And as I talked about Jesus, he got interested. So I gave him a New Testament. I said, look, why don't we do this? Read this. Read as much as you can. And whatever you don't understand, underline those things. And let's meet here tomorrow. He came back the next day. And he asked me questions. He had underlined a bunch of stuff. And we did that every day. So, you know, after we had kind of been through one of the Gospels. And then one day he said, he said, you know what? I don't want to discuss this anymore. I said, why? He said, this is already beginning to have an effect on my life. Just reading this. He said, I've stopped drinking. I've stopped smoking. I don't know what's wrong with me. I used to go to the disco, dance with women. I don't do that anymore. Man, this is getting under my skin. So I said, well, that's good. I said, that's the whole purpose of this book. It should get under your skin. I said, so, so what do you want to do? He says, man, I want to receive Jesus. I said, I'm glad to hear that. So I prayed with him. Then I baptized him. And I remember when we baptized him, when he came out of the water, he began to shout in tongues. I said, oh, that's one less thing to ex explain to him, you know. <laughs> he came out. Because uh, he was asking me questions for about everything. I said, this is one thing I don't want to explain. He got it already. And, and, you know, and then he kind of disappeared from my life. I went to Rayma and uh, he dis I introduced him to my friends in England. And, he, you know, he was crying. He said, if you go away, who will disciple me? I said, I have some friends in England. Send him there. Then years later, years later, I found out that, you know, he was Algerian. He had married a Chinese lady from Malaysia. Figure that out. <laughs> and he had gone to Algeria. And then he was back in England. I just heard like sketchy details like that. 
Then one day I met a retired missionary in Sweden. I was, uh, you know, I lived great part of my life in Sweden. So I was asking this retired missionary. I said, so brother, what are you doing these days? He was in the Middle East. He said, I go to the Middle East, teach in Bible schools. I said, where's your next trip? I said, I'm going to Algeria. I said, Algeria? I thought there was, there was civil war there with, uh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people massacred. He said, no, the civil war has stopped and there is a revival in Algeria. Really? Then he said, oh yeah. He says, this one area of Algeria, there's revival there and there's tens of thousands of born-again, spirit-filled former Muslims. And he says, and the guy who leads the whole thing, by the way, he talks about you all the time. I said, really? I said, he said, yeah, yeah, he talks about you. He said, he, he, that you, that he received Christ in your living room. I said, what's his name? They said, Yusuf. That's Arabic for Joseph. I said, oh yeah, Yusuf. Chinese wife. He said, yeah, that's him. Then he, he said, he's leading that work. He says, if you read the reports, the monthly reports, it's like reading a page out of the book of Acts. And so anyway, the next year I was back in Sweden preaching at a conference and I'm, I'm, uh, and I'm sharing and there he's sitting. I said, Yusuf, is that you? And he came up and we hugged and we both cried. And I suddenly realized, here's a guy who came from nowhere. I led him to Jesus. And today he's doing a work that has far surpassed the work that I'm doing. He's doing a great Work for God. Even the U.S. Congress had him address them on how to deal with the Muslim world. So I think of Yusuf. I think of people who I have met over the years. And I think of what Jesus has done in their lives. And I can tell you pastors who are... Other day, uh, I, I, I got on Facebook a message from a man. He said, I got saved in your... In your meeting 20 years ago, I'm pastoring a church of 900 people. I'm traveling all over the world preaching the gospel. So, you know, you have all these people. So, that's the second reason I preach the gospel. I preach the gospel because of what I have seen Jesus do in the lives of other people. Hallelujah. The third personal reason why I preach the gospel is because of a man called Jim Turner. And uh, when when I came out of prison, I began to go to uh, an Anglican church, and it was a Wednesday night. And the pastor, he was an Australian missionary. He said, "Brother, on Sunday, could you please sit in the back?" Because I was eager, I always sat in the front. I said, sure, I'll sit anywhere you want me to, but why? He said, because uh, uh, Sunday is communion Sunday, and I cannot give you communion because you're not baptized. I said, well, pastor, I've been to prison for my faith, and I want to be baptized. And he said, I'm sorry. I said, why can't you baptize me? He says, I can't baptize you. I said, do you know of any other pastor who would baptize me? He said, no. Uh... I said, why? Then he began to explain to me. He says, Muslims view water baptism as the final break. When you say you have received Jesus and, you know, they will try to convince you to come back and that kind of thing. But when you get water baptized, you have crossed the line of no return. Then they know he's gone. He's not coming back again. And that's why he says, now, you've got to understand, not all Muslims are like that. 
But the real, you know, fanatics, the fundamentalists, they are like that. He said the fundamentalists, what they'll do, uh, firstly they'll kill the pastor who baptized the Muslim convert, then they'll kill the Muslim convert, then they'll attack his church, they'll burn his church and attack his church people, kill church people, they'll be rioting, then the police will come in, it'll be in the newspapers, it'll, uh, you know, affect relations we are a minority in this country, it will affect our relations with the Muslim community. And so we as, a, as pastors have decided we are not going to baptize any Muslim converts because it's just too much trouble. So I can't baptize you. So I couldn't take communion because for me, taking communion meant everything because taking communion, I have always believed this partaking of the body and the blood of Christ. And so... So I couldn't take communion and then I meet this, uh, this uh, Baptist missionary from Kansas, Pastor Jim Turner. I had met him once or twice very briefly, I didn't really know him. He comes to me, he says, brother, I heard you want to be baptized so you can take communion. I said, yes, sir. He said, I can baptize you. I said, sir, uh, it's very risky if you baptize me because uh, they could kill you and you're American and uh, there could be an international incident. He said, no, no, don't worry. He says, uh, I have been watching you and I know God's hand is on your life. And if it means so much for you to take communion, I'll baptize you because I don't want anything to hinder you from fully partaking of that which God has for you. So he took me to the ocean and he baptized me in the presence of many witnesses. A few weeks later I had to escape and five, six months later I was in Sweden in Bible school and then one day I get a letter from a senior American missionary in which he says Pastor Jim Turner has been killed and they found his body in the mountains. And I checked through my sources and of course I found out that he had been killed because he had baptized me. You know, I couldn't understand why an American missionary with three children, the beautiful wife would choose to risk his life and to die so that an Arab kid could take communion. And I, so every time now I take communion, I, I think of Jim Turner, what it cost him so that I can take communion. Every altar call I do, it's like trying to pay off a debt that I know I can never repay. Let me just say this, sometimes... It costs us something to follow Jesus. There is a price to be paid. And uh, now you, you might say, well, I cannot relate, relate to that. That's unique for you. That never happened to me. But that's not entirely true because I know somebody who died for you. The Bible tells us how he thought of you, he looked at you, how he was whipped and bruised and beaten, how they crowned him with thorns and covered with his own blood, covered with the spit of sinners. He carried the cross to Calvary where he died for you. So I know somebody 
who paid that kind of price for you. I was not unique in that. Why don't we bow our heads together? While your head is bowed, I just want to ask you this one question. That man, he died for you upon that cross. And so, my question to you is this. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? Are you going to live your life from today onwards in a manner that is a worthy response to the price that Jesus Christ paid for you? That is my challenge to you. Are you going to live your life in a manner that is a worthy response to the price that He, Jesus Christ, paid for you? Or are you just going to walk away? So if you, if your heart says to me, to you that I need to get right with God, I need my sins forgiven, then more than anything else, I want to pray with you. See, if you say, I need to make things right with God, I need my sins forgiven, could you just show me a hand wherever you are? God bless you, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you, God bless you. God bless you, God bless you right there. God bless you, God bless you. God bless you right there. Anybody else? Let me see your hand. Because I don't want you laying in your bed tonight feeling regret, saying to yourself, that man stood there and poured his heart out and I just stood, sat there thinking of what people would think of me. It doesn't matter what people think of you. Because ultimately we stand before Jesus. And he, paid, he died for you and for me. Nobody else ever did that for you, but he did. So if you put your hand up, could you please stand to your feet? Please stand with me. If you put your hand up, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be embarrassed about. I did that one day. And I remember when I did that, it cost me everything. I lost my family, I lost everything, my worldly things, I went to prison. Nobody's going to do that to you. This is America, you will not go to prison. They will not kill you. But it does cost you something. There is a price to pay. Anybody else? You say, Brother Christopher, I need to get, get right with God. I need my sins forgiven. Just stand up. This is... And I'm going to do something. I'm going to ask you to kindly leave your seat and come and stand in front of me. I do that because Jesus was not ashamed to carry that cross for me and for you. That's why I'm not ashamed to ask you to be bold and to stand up and make that walk from where you were seated and to come here. Please face me. Turn around and face me. Can you pull this platform back a couple of meters, couple of yards? Please come and stand right here, sir. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Just come and stand in front of me. Amen. Please come closer. Come closer. God bless you. Bless you, sir. Bless you, miss. You did the right thing. 
takes a lot of guts to stand before people. It takes courage. And the Bible says the coward shall not enter the kingdom of God. It takes courage. Praise God. Now we're going to pray together. And when we pray, every word that we pray is registered in heaven. Don't ever believe that God doesn't hear. God does hear. The Bible says he's a very present help in the time of trouble. Pastor Mark, would you please come and join me? Let's bow our heads together and close our eyes and lift up our hands to God.